This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 25th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Andrew Curry talks about evidence of a surprisingly large Bronze Age battle uncovered in northern Germany. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on letting go of orcas. Late last week, SeaWorld announced they were making big changes to their killer whale policy. Dave, this is totally your beat, so I'm going to put a lot of this on you here. What changes did they make, and were they expected? Well, you know, this comes after years of pressure from animal advocates who didn't like seeing, especially killer whales, in captivity at SeaWorld. Also follows the documentary Blackfish, which came out in 2013, which really cast a negative light on orcas at SeaWorld, especially an orca named Tulicum that had uh, killed a few people at SeaWorld. And the advocates claimed that it was because this animal was super stressed out and didn't want to be in captivity. But SeaWorld has sort of, you know, up until now, it kind of resisted stopping breeding of killer whales, arguing that it was really important to have these animals in its facilities. It was good for the public and they were doing important research. But with ending their breeding of orcas, this is a big change for them, basically saying, you know, in the future, we won't have any of these animals in our parks anymore. So they're no longer going to breed the orcas. Are they going to still have the ones that are they going to keep the ones that they have? Uh, they are. And for some of these animals, I mean, these animals can live decades. So what it means is that for the foreseeable future, there will still be orcas at these parks. Very few people actually arguing that SeaWorld put these orcas out into the wild. Even most animal advocates are not arguing for that because when that's been done in the past, for example, the free willy, a killer whale, that did not turn out very well. These animals, especially if they were born in captivity or spent most of their lives in captivity, can't really adjust to the wild environment. And as of now, there's really no marine sanctuaries for these animals. So there's not like a mm -hmm. sea pen or a large a large enclosure in the sea that SeaWorld could put these animals into because nothing like that exists. So at least for the short term, all these animals will remain at SeaWorld. 
You talked to a lot of different marine scientists for the story, and they didn't all agree on whether this was a good idea. What are some of the reasons researchers are worried about this decision? Well, there's a lot of scientists out there that work on orcas and that work on dolphins. And a lot of them have done their research with animals in captivity, both at SeaWorld and at other so-called ocean area, other types of facilities that keep these animals in tanks. And, you know, they've long argued that a lot of the stuff that we've learned from these animals, knowledge about their physiology, their breeding habits, even their cognition has only been possible because we've been able to do controlled experiments in captivity, the types of experiments we can't do or that a lot of scientists argue that can't be done effectively in the wild. So a lot of them are worried about these animals no longer being available in captivity in the future because they've argued that a lot of what we've learned and a lot of things that may be useful, for example, conserving them as the oceans change, as the world changes, most of that knowledge has been coming from captivity. It's a little bit striking that a lot of what we know about their cognition and their intelligence probably comes from studies of them in captivity, but that's being used as an argument to release these animals or to stop breeding them. Uh, what other kind of arguments are people making that, you know, this is a bad idea, we shouldn't keep killer whales in captivity? Well, you know, some of the irony is that, you know, some of what we learned about these animals from studies in captivity have convinced some scientists that they shouldn't be in captivity. For example, scientists have learned that dolphins can recognize themselves in a mirror. And that's actually a skill that a lot of animals don't possess. And some scientists think that is evidence of self-awareness. And the idea is if you've got an animal that's self-aware and is sort of aware of the type of environment it's in, maybe it knows it doesn't want to be in that type of environment. And so the argument has been made, well, these animals are too smart. They're too social to be kept in these relatively small tanks, especially for killer whales, which have a range of 160 kilometers, up to 160 kilometers a day to keep them in what's essentially a large pool. A lot of people have argued is is antithetical to what we know about sort of how they perceive the world. And the same arguments have been made about dolphins. You mentioned dolphins. We started talking about orcas and now we're talking about dolphins to some extent. They're all cetaceans. Is this a direction that, you know, these Oceanaria and these researchers are pushing as well? Do they want to stop breeding dolphins in captivity? Yeah, a lot of the people that are, a lot of the scientists, especially who have made these arguments about getting orcas out of captivity, have made the same arguments for dolphins. And actually, we probably know more about that cognition of dolphins at this point than we do about orcas. Now, SeaWorld has not made any announcements about its dolphins, but you can expect that to be the next phase of the animal advocacy movement in terms of these animals is a push to get dolphins uh, out of captivity as well. Is this part of a more general trend in the U.S. right now? There have been some major shifts in the approach to the use of chimpanzees in research too, right? Exactly. I mean, this really seems like part of a larger trend. We're seeing a lot of this hand-wringing about cetaceans in captivity. A few months ago, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. announced that it was not going to support any research on chimpanzees in captivity unless it directly benefited those animals. We've seen concern about large animals, especially animals that we consider more cognitively complex, like elephants and other great apes in places like zoos. So I think this is all part and parcel of the same idea about what are the ethics of keeping some of these animals we consider cognitively complex, or at least more cognitively complex than other animals, 
in a captive environment. Next up, we have a story on bringing new elements into life. You've probably heard of the idea of silicon-based life. This is basically organic molecules that use the element silicon instead of carbon. Why would anyone think this was likely to happen? I'm looking at you, (laughs) Star Trek fans. (laughs) Well, you know, at least here on Earth, silicon actually makes up 28% of Earth's crust, and that's versus 0.03% for carbon. And yet all life on Earth is carbon-based. There's no life that incorporates silicon into its uh, organic matter. And the question is, why? It's a question that science fiction authors have asked for a long time, and especially given that silicon has similar bonding abilities to carbon. Referencing back to Star Trek, there is an episode of the original series with a creature called the Horta, which is a sort of a rock-like creature that's uh, largely made of uh, silicon. And so the question is, why aren't we seeing animals like that on Earth where silicon is relatively abundant. And now researchers have announced that they've evolved an enzyme that can incorporate silicon into organic molecules. What do they mean by evolved? Yeah, that's one of the neat aspects of this study. The researchers essentially played mother nature here and they wanted to see, can we force an organism to evolve a new way of living? And they started with a so-called thermophilic bacterium. This is in microbe that grows in hot springs. And these microbes, at least the microbe they look at, has an enzyme called cytochrome C. And this enzyme basically shuttles electrons to other proteins. It's a very useful enzyme in biochemistry. And this enzyme utilizes carbon, like all other enzymes on Earth. But in some very rare cases, on the side, this enzyme very occasionally incorporates a silicon into the molecules that it helps to make. And so the question the researchers said is, well, if we surrounded this thing with silicon and forced it to use silicon, could we select generation after generation for a type of this bacterium which actually starts to use silicon instead of carbon? And they found that after only a few generations, they were able to create an enzyme or actually have this bacterium create an enzyme which had evolved to churn out silicon-containing hydrocarbons at 2,000 times the rate it normally does. And these hydrocarbons, what exactly are they? And and are they something that the bacteria can use or a product that chemists might be interested in? Well, right now, they're not really useful to the bacterium. They're very short and stubby, unlike the long chain-like versions that happen when the enzyme uses uh, carbon instead of silicon. But if these silicon-spiked hydrocarbon compounds, which are called organosilanes, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, can be improved, these are the type of compounds that are used in such materials as adhesives, chalks, and sealants. So the idea is if this type of thing could be perfected, you could theoretically have a life form that creates the types of materials we might want to use in industry and other applications. And maybe a horta down the road, too. And maybe a horta. (laughs) Lastly, we have a story on old dads. We're just starting to learn that there are some negative consequences when a man decides to have some kids in his sunset years, like increased new mutations in the kids. 
now a new study is looking at the potential effect of these mutations on their kids' kids, grandkids of an old dad, if you will. How did the researchers look across so many generations? Well, what they did was they actually looked at church census records from the 17th and 18th century, Germany and Canada and Sweden, and they compared that to more current records from Sweden. And they looked at more than a million people in total. And when they crunched the numbers and they looked at old dads, their kids, and their kids' kids, what did they see? What, what kinds of differences did they see between old dads and younger dads? They saw a trend that seemed to hold over time, which is that older fathers, on average, tended to have fewer grandchildren than younger fathers. And that's a very important thing to notice because it means that their genes aren't penetrating the next generation as much as, say, a younger dad, right? Right. And that's really the overall point here is, is evolution or is natural selection sort of biased against older fathers? And scientists have sort of long thought that it should be because older fathers tend to pass on more mutations to their offspring. Now, not all these mutations are bad, but they can be bad. And so the idea is if you're more likely to pass on mutations, then evolution would sort of disfavor you having children and grandchildren because that would sort of keep those mutations out of the gene pool. Let's put some numbers to this. How big of an effect did they see of this old dad on your grandkids? So for each decade that a father aged, his children had somewhere between 5% and 13% fewer children of their own. And the larger percentages happened a couple hundred years ago, and the smaller percentage is what we see today. But overall, they still saw this effect where there was a small decrease in the number of grandchildren that resulted from older fathers. And that kind of makes sense because back in the day, 17th century day, having kids with more mutations, they might not live as long. Their kids' kids might not live as long. What about now? I mean, infant mortality is incredibly decreased since the 17th century. How do those numbers play into this? Well, you know, that was curious because kids, by and large, didn't survive as long. The infant mortality was higher. And if you had, say, a mutation that maybe impacted your immune system or your heart, you were much more likely to die a couple hundred years ago than you are today. So the big question is, why would we still be seeing an effect in today's age of modern medicine? And it could be that even though children are surviving longer than they were in the old days, they could still be struggling with things like infertility or autism, things where mutations might play a role and be thus less likely to sire children of their own. And so you would still have fewer grandchildren down the line. How seriously should someone take this when considering having kids? Well, right. And it's important to note at this point that these numbers are very small and you have to look at, you know, in this case, more than a million people to see these effects. So for the individual father, there's probably not a lot of cause for concern. These are more things that we're interested in viewing on more of a population level. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, sir, we've got a story about how to predict the world's most deadly infectious disease, a new way to predict it anyway, and whether bonobos, these are relatives, very close relatives of chimpanzees, use language in the same way we do. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why North Dakota has torpedoed an experiment to find a new way to bury nuclear waste. 
Also a story about how China is adopting its first guidelines for laboratory animal welfare. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. This next segment is about recent archaeological evidence for a gargantuan Bronze Age battle in northern Germany. Now, geographically, Bronze Age is actually a moving target. When bronze was used, that's the Bronze Age for that region. Around Greece, the Bronze Age ran from about 3200 BCE up to about 1000 BCE. In northern Europe, the Bronze Age began much later, around 1700 BCE, and ends around 500 BCE. Now on to the battle. I asked Andrew Curry, who reported on the latest findings from this dig, to start us off with a description of the epic fight. I sort of imagine some sort of face-off or confrontation on either side of a, a bridge on this really narrow, winding river that meanders through this tiny valley. And something goes wrong, or one side just won't budge, and fighting breaks out really personal. I mean, people are getting shot with arrows from 10 or 20 meters away. There's people getting knifed in the chest. There's guys getting their heads bashed in with wooden clubs. This moves along the river. They have bodies strewn over three kilometers along this river. Vicious, thousands of people involved. I imagine it must have been really confusing to figure out who was who. You have warriors, maybe some of them professional, maybe some of them mercenaries, coming from all over Europe to this kind of seemingly random place in, in northern Europe that was only distinguished by this bridge. So it's pretty pretty dramatic. Yeah. And there's no historical record of this battle. All of the description that you've given us so far has been worked out from an archaeological find. How did this battle field and its combatants get discovered in the first place? Quickly after they died, they were covered by layers of peat and mud and preserved by the wet conditions until 1996, when a local amateur archaeologist was going down the river and saw an upper arm bone poking out of the side of the riverbank. And he pulled it out and there was a flint arrowhead a couple centimeters long embedded deep in the bone. And he brought it to the attention of the local preservation office. And they did some preliminary excavations and found more bones and what they describe as a baseball bat, but from <laughs> 1250 BC and thought, okay, maybe there's something more to this. Over the course of about five years, they've found almost 10,000 bones and more weapons. And yeah, concluded that it was a pretty cataclysmic battle. Wow. And now that researchers have been digging away for quite a while at this site, it turns out this is an incomprehensibly large battle for this time and this place. What do we used to think this area of the world was like at this time? So this far north in Europe, it was really sparsely populated and pretty individual. I mean, people think there were about five people per square kilometer and people were living you know, maybe with their extended family on individual farmsteads. There were no towns, there were no villages, there were no cities. You have the occasional big burial mound, but there's no sense that there was a organized society or civilization in the, in the way you have in the Near East at the time or in Egypt or something like that. 
So it's sort of baffling to archaeologists how this incredibly widespread decentralized society pulled together thousands of warriors in one place. Can you place us in time here? What was happening, say, in the Middle East and around the Mediterranean and Greece at the same time when we think this battle was taking place? Egypt has historical records of of battles going on. This is kind of the height of, of the pharaohs. And it's also the very beginning of civilization in Greece. There were the Mycenaeans who were predecessors of the ancient Greeks as, as we know them. This is also the time of the Old Testament. Yeah, so there's a lot going on, but most of it we're familiar with from much further south right. around the Mediterranean. What I found really interesting about the way people are looking at this find isn't just, oh, it's proving something different about Northern Europe during the Bronze Age, but they're actually saying this is really good evidence for war, and we didn't think war happened this long ago. But, you know, Homer told us about Troy and that they had armies there, and, and didn't ancient Egypt have wars? I mean, ancient Egypt and Greece have historical accounts of wars. And in the Bible, too, we're told that wars took place. But there's never been a site where you find bodies and weapons and evidence of violence all in one place. And especially further north. I mean, people were willing to give the Egyptians and the Greeks credit for telling the truth. (laughs) But further north, you know, people thought that the weapons they found in, in graves were maybe just for show or prestige and that they probably weren't used on a regular basis. But this really shows that that was way off. Yeah. And you said before that here in northern Germany, the population was really, really low, and that still all these people converged to fight it out. What does the archaeological evidence say about where they came from? So from isotopic evidence, chemical composition of the teeth, it looks like people came, some of them came from the local area, but some of them also came from maybe hundreds of kilometers to the south and east. One archaeologist I talked to compared it to Homer, actually, and, and the attack on Troy, where lots of different war bands came together to fight in one place a long way away. Ancient DNA evidence is just in the beginning stages of analysis, but the ancient DNA is telling a similar story that these folks came from pretty far afield and are related to populations that today, you know, some of them look like modern Poland or Russia and some of them look like modern Italy. So really, really different in terms of the DNA as well. Can you describe a little bit about their garb and and what we know about them as, you know, warriors? So far from this site, we just have their bones, so we can tell you know, who they were and, and how they died. But there's a lot of evidence from graves, including some burials that were preserved, where you, you even find the clothes from the region, and probably wearing leather and wool clothes. The higher-ranking warriors would have had bronze helmets. Maybe the lower-ranking guys would have had felt hats that could have protected them from something. There were horses found at the battlefield, so maybe some of them were mounted, although it's also possible the horses were there as pack animals. And they had all different kinds of weapons, from bronze swords and spears to flint arrowheads and these wooden clubs. So they think maybe there were commanders and generals, all the way down to grunts with really basic stuff. They also had wounds that had healed from previous encounters. Right. So there was a number of these guys who had obviously been in fights before and had broken bones or 
other healed wounds that looked like they had survived something similar. So, you know, we're either dealing with professional warriors, mercenaries, or just a society where this kind of brutal clash was a lot more normal than we used to think. One thing that really amazed me about this is that this is a single event that doesn't take place over a very, very long period of time. How long do they think this battle lasted and and what's the evidence? They think it lasted a day or two at most. And the evidence for that is that there's no signs of healed wounds and everybody is from the same date, essentially. I mean, the radiocarbon dates have a lot of wiggle room, but it doesn't make sense that you would have so many bodies in the same place with the same weapons, same violence from multiple conflicts. What about the bridge or causeway found in the midst of the battle? Was this a strategic point? It must have been. This this region of Germany is really marshy, really wet, and there's a lot of rivers that sort of meander through. And this bridge, according to the radiocarbon dates, had been around for 500 years. So it must have been a local landmark, maybe an important crossing point. And this three-kilometer stretch of valley where the bodies have been found, the southern limit of that is the bridge. And then everything seems to start there and move north. They haven't really found any bodies south of the bridge. So whatever happened, this must have been a pretty critical point that people were fighting over. This is a big find, you know, tons of bones and weapons. What percentage of the site has been uncovered so far? Incredibly, maybe just five to 10% of it at most. 450 square meters, which seems like a lot, but when you drop that into three kilometers of valley, it's kind of pinpricks in the larger landscape. So it's possible that there's hundreds more bodies. They did some rough calculations. And if you have hundreds of bodies, you have to assume that lots of people survived the battle too, which is how they reached this figure of maybe up to 4,000 people fighting. Do we, are we ever going to know what they were fighting about? Probably not. You know, everybody loves to speculate. <laughs> but as you mentioned earlier, the written word didn't arrive in this part of of Europe for another 2,000 years. So there's no good way to to know. We know that they were fighting. We know that they were pretty serious about it, but there's probably never going to be a final answer. Does this finding overturn a lot of what we think we knew about Europe at this time in history? It does. It's a pretty big deal. You know, people really didn't think about violence or even social organization on this scale. And if you think about what it takes to put 4,000 men, and these were all men between 20 and 40, in the fields today for an army. That's a huge logistical undertaking to feed these guys, to move them, to communicate, to bring them all together in one place at the same time. So whatever was going on, this society was a lot more complicated than people used to think. And this is, in addition to being a dramatic event, it shows that this was a really complicated, sophisticated place in Europe that deserves to be given more credit. Andrew, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Andrew Curry is a freelance writer based in Germany. His story this week in science features not only wonderful writing, but also amazing graphics, illustrations, photographs, even an interactive feature. So be sure to check it out at sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. 
On behalf of Science Magazine and publisher AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.